All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATAS, your Sumerian Wizards speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, I'm going to talk with you about Lord of the Isles by David Drake. This book was originally published in 1997. This is a bonus episode that I am doing because Brandon and I received a commission to cover David Drake's really excellent occult detective book called Old Nathan over on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast. I just love that book so much that I wanted to read more David Drake and I wanted to do it immediately. And in fact, I actually started reading this book even before Brandon and I recorded our episode on Old Nathan. Uh, in fact, even before I had finished reading Old Nathan. And we have done that episode now. It is done. It's published. So if you're here just for David Drake, I hope you will go over to Elder Sign and check that show out too. Check that episode out too, I should say. And there is a link to Elder Sign in the show notes to make that easy for you. But really, that's only part of the equation that led me to doing this bonus episode here. I was really excited to get a commission to read some Drake because he was a massive presence on the bookshelves in the fantasy and science fiction section of my childhood bookstore, uh, the bookstore that I could walk to from my house, was also right across the street from church and right next to the library. Uh, what I'm saying is I was there a lot just browsing. I knew I was not going to buy anything, but I would go there to browse as a, a, an entertainment. And then Drake was... Also a major and really distinct presence on the shelves of the big box bookstore that I used to visit once I was of driving age. This is, in fact, a store that I then wound up working at for a few years when I got out of the army. But even though Drake's books seemed to be everywhere, and even though they really caught my eye because of the, the beautiful art by artists such as Larry Elmore and Kevin Murphy, and also just because Drake is a killer name for a fantasy writer, I never read anything by him. And so I'm super glad to finally be making up for that. All right, that was a, a long preamble about, I don't know, bookstores I used to go to. So let's leave that aside. Let's get to it. Let's go talk about Lord of the Isles. The first thing I need to say is that Lord of the Isles is the first in a series. There are nine books total in this series, though that is broken up between two completed story arcs. The first of them is just called Lord of the Isles, after the name of this first book, and then the second is called The Crown of the Isles Trilogy. And the deal is that I have only read the first book so far, so everything that I'm going to say is limited to what is contained in those 500 pages, even though there is closer to 5,000 pages worth of world building that uh, veterans of this series will have at their disposal. Okay, with that out of the way, Let's start with the world itself before we go meet any of the characters, before we talk about the plot. Lord of the Isles is a classic high fantasy book, so we're dealing with a pre-modern setting that's infused with some numinous elements, some supernatural elements. Much of the technology is from the Roman period. There's heavy use of iron, there are water mills, and there's a robust maritime commerce. Uh, this includes ships, but also currency and even something of a banking system as well. All of that is to say that the material and also the social world feels very different, actually, from the familiar medieval-esque world of Tolkien and D&D. But at the same time, it actually feels well in line with the sword and sorcery tradition of Conan. Now, the geography of this world is important. It's also very cool, I think. The setting is an island archipelago. Uh, it's in the shape of a circle. These are the isles of the book's title, as you can imagine. And this, of course, is why ships and commerce and banking matter so much. And in this way, it is very much akin to the Roman Empire in that the inner sea is a real highway that links these islands, links all these coasts. Uh, though, of course, there is also here, in this case, an outer sea and some hints at a, a wider world that seems uh, really compelling and that I am sure we will get more of in the later volumes. 
Politically, these islands seemed to be united under a single government. That was not entirely clear, to be honest. But in any case, that government is prone to usurpations and civil wars. And so, in this case, it is also very much like the Roman Empire. Culturally, as well, we can look at the ancient Mediterranean and also the ancient Near East for a kind of framework to help us along. This is a world of tunics and oared ships with galley slaves, though it is a world that does not seem to have chattel slavery. I should note that right away. It is also a world of sheep and shepherds. Uh, It's a fairly literate and urbane world with police forces and poetry. But it is definitely multicultural, just as the ancient world was. And we can see this even just in the place names, where some of them have a Sumerian feel to them, but others are clearly more Greek. And while there does seem to be a dominant culture and language and religion, these definitely do not extend to all of the islands. Speaking of religion, there is some widespread religion, but we don't actually get very much of it. And this is, I think, very good world building in the sense that we don't get this explained to us. And it is something that I am hoping and and really expecting that we will get more of in the subsequent books, that this will get fleshed out more. We'll, We'll see more of it. Let's also talk some magic. This is a world with wizards. In fact, there are many of them. Not a lot of them, but many. They serve as advisors and assistants to important political figures. And it may even be that there's a kind of stable of wizards that the king sends out on missions with military commanders. Uh, These wizards themselves, and, and also the commanders, I guess, being drawn from the landed aristocracy. Though none of that is rendered all that explicit in this book, but it it seems to be implicitly there. It does also seem to be the case, though, that there are at least some self-employed wizards. Being a wizard, having magical powers, is something that is innate to people. You are either born with this proclivity or you are not, but it does also require training and education And also the wizards have varying degrees of power, and even people with only a very little power can receive the training and the education to perform spells. Though, of course, they're not going to be able to perform powerful spells, or what in D&D terms, right, we would think of as high-level spells. And spells is very much how this works. There are rituals of word and gesture Uh, that also at least sometimes require material components and blood sacrifices. And some of them also only work at specific times. Uh, Mostly we see that as specific times of uh, a a day or a specific time of a month, though I imagine there are also some annual uh, holy days, holidays, uh, that will confer more numinous power for certain spells or all spells or something like that. At any rate, magical power exists as a kind of force in the world. It's a kind of energy. And the strength of it can ebb and flow uh, like a magnetic field. And this seems to occur in regular cycles. Uh, Those cycles are are long cycles. They're not daily, weekly, monthly. They're they're carried out over a period of decades and, and maybe even centuries, really. Right now, as our story is beginning, the world is entering a period of high magical power. And so even wizards, who are normally only mildly powerful, are beginning now to be able to do some serious business magic. So that's the world. Let's go meet some characters. Our story begins in the rural community of Barca's Hamlet. Uh, That name, Barca, by the way, that is the surname of the famous Hannibal who brought the elephants over the Alps during the Second Punic War. And so right away, we can see that the name is Punic, which, although from Northwest Africa, uh, the Punic language is Semitic. It is related specifically to Phoenician. That's really what Punic means in, in, in Latin or as the way that Romans used it. Uh, so really, that's just one example of the linguistic world building that Drake does. But really, the point here is that, hey, Barca's Hamlet, it's a small community on the coast. People mostly engage in fishing and the herding of sheep. Our main character is Garrick, and he is the son of the local innkeeper and his wife. And so our story begins in an inn, uh, also, of course, very much in classic high fantasy style. And it is your standard D&D inn. It's more of a pub than a hotel, though it does also have rooms. 
Naturally, there is something special about the teenaged Garrick. His parents aren't originally from around here, or even originally from this island. Even in the first act, it becomes apparent that Garrick and his sister are not really the biological children of the people they regard as their parents, and that these parents brought them here as babies from the capital in the midst of a usurpation. And I'm sure you see where that is going, right? Garrick and his sister are, of course, the children of the previous rulers, and so might be considered something of a threat to the current ruler, also might be considered something of an asset to any current usurpers, or or people who are planning to usurp, really, I should say. But there is even more to it than that. Garrick is having dreams in which a great king from a thousand years ago speaks to him. As the story continues, it becomes clear that Garrick is in some way possessed by the ghost of this long-dead king. And so Garrick has some of his memories and also some of his skills, uh, most importantly with a sword, for example. There's another set of siblings in Barkus Hamlet as well who are also growing up in the absence of their biological parents. These are Cashel and Ilna, who have lived with their uncle at the village's watermill. Ilna is a weaver by trade, and Cashel is a shepherd, though they do also own half the mill through their inheritance from their father. And these are our our principal characters, though there are more characters to meet. But let's get into the plot, right? The question is, hey, what's what's the story? Well, it's geopolitical machinations. There are political factions in the Isles, and one of the biggest islands is even operating mostly independently. It's kind of uh, de facto independent at this point. Somehow, someone has figured out that the children of the previous ruler escaped 16 years ago, and they are being sought for, those children I mean, by at least two political factions. Magic has allowed, or maybe caused, Garrick and Ilna to be located, and so the story really gets going when one faction's agents show up by boat. They recognize Ilna, though they don't seem to care about Garrick, actually. There's, surprisingly, no danger here. Uh, They tell Ilna who she is, and then ask her to come back to the capital with them so that she can take her rightful place in aristocratic society, and she's into it. But right after she leaves, someone else comes to town, overland this time, so from the opposite direction. He's an aristocrat who is also a wizard, and he knows all about Garrick. And so he gets Garrick to come with him to the major city on this island. We'll talk about what that city is called a little bit later in the next segment. Though mostly Garrick goes along here in this case because he is romantically interested in this wizard's daughter. And those feelings are are mutual, and it's clear that they are mutual. Cashel and Ilna decide to go along with Garrick and this wizard, uh, and so does another character I haven't mentioned yet. Her name is Tenoctris, and she's a wizard from a thousand years ago who somehow survived a natural disaster that sank an entire island and time-traveled to the future, uh, which is to say, to the present of our story. And ultimately, the deal is this. A thousand years ago, there was an evil wizard, uh, or at least an ambitious and utterly reckless wizard who goes by the Hooded One. And he's back. He is, in some way, unclear at this point, but in some way, he is behind the search for Garrick and Ilna, uh, especially Garrick, really, because of this whole being possessed by the ghost of the dead king, who, hey, also was from a thousand years ago. And the Hooded One here is an antagonist, a, a real excellent sword and sorcery antagonist. He is sending liches and other obstacles for Garrick all throughout the book. Most of the book then follows the adventures of these five young people, and also Tenoctris, as they set out from Barca's Hamlet. Garrick's sister Sharina and a local man who has accompanied her as a protector end up on an island that just shouldn't exist. Uh, While they're there, they fight ant people. And then later, they actually end up as part of a community that lives permanently on rafts in the sea. Uh, Both of these episodes, both of these uh, plot lines were very, very cool. Garrick, Tenoctris, Ilna, and Leanne, uh, Leanne is the name of the aristocrat's daughter, they all end up dealing with liches and demons They even travel to other planes of existence in order to have some of these interactions. 
Ilna ends up on her own for a little while, and she's actually given a magical ability by a demon. Uh, This turns her into something of a villain for a little while, in fact. Cashel ends up on his own uh, a little more quickly than Ilna does, and he takes a job as a a kind of bodyguard for some merchants. Uh, He also becomes friends with a type of small fairy who most people can't see. He also fights a demon and is almost captured by uh, sea nymphs, uh, seduced by sea nymphs, uh, and and captured is uh, really what I should say. This is really the bulk of the book, and these adventures are all just a a, a ton of fun. Some of them are even rather comical, while others are are deeply emotional. I I, I was on the the verge of tears, actually, at many points in, in this book. But ultimately, these are side adventures, as the final act of the book has all these characters regrouping, you know, getting back together in order to take on the Hooded One and, and winning. Uh, the book does definitely conclude, even as we the readers, of course, we know that there will be more. And in fact, I was surprised that they had this confrontation with the Hooded One. As the book is, is, is going and going and going, we're getting close to the end. It did feel to me like this was a book that was going to definitely end on either a kind of cliffhanger or a kind of game changer to propel us into the next book. Uh, Of course, I was armed with the knowledge that this is only the first book uh, out of many books, but no, it's a a complete story, and I I really appreciated that, Uh, though it does also clearly leave room for the fact that there is going to be more, because really, we've only wrapped up one part of the plot. We have not wrapped up the geopolitical machinations. And even still, we know, the Hooded One, he's not defeated completely. He's not gone. He will be back. Let's move into our themes and motifs segment now. There are two things that I want to talk about here. One of them is violence and trauma, especially military violence. And the other, really the first that I'll talk about, is Drake's literary and cultural allusions and how he's playing with language in the world building. And... These might seem really far apart, like they're not all that related to each other, but both of these themes are linked in a prefatory note to the reader, and I am actually just going to read this entire note for you. A note to the reader. I've stolen all the verse quoted within this novel from Greek and Latin poets. Calandre is Horace, whose odes I carried through basic training and into Vietnam. Rigel is Homer, and the passage quoted, to me the most moving passage in literature, is from the Iliad. Edder is Hildebert of Laverdin. There's more to medieval Latin than hymns and drinking songs, though I'll admit I found Hildebert a pleasant surprise. No translation does justice to its original. These, mine, don't purport to do so. The general religion of the Isles is based on Sumerian beliefs, and to a lesser degree, Sumerian practice. I have very roughly paraphrased the funeral service described herein from verses to the goddess Inanna. I think I should mention one thing more. The magical phrase is, Vocus Mystici, quoted throughout the novel, are real. I don't mean that they really summon magical powers. Personally, I don't believe that they do. But very many men and women did believe in the power of these words and used them in all seriousness to work for good or ill. Individuals can make their own decisions on the matter, but I didn't pronounce any of the Vocus Mystici while I was writing Lord of the Isles. David Drake, Chatham County, North Carolina. I have almost as much to say about this note as I do about the story itself, because this note really moved me. And I hope you'll indulge me as I talk about myself uh, a little more than usual, Uh, maybe a lot more than usual. We'll, We'll see how it goes. I also am an army veteran who carried a book with me to basic training and have a deep love of classics. Though I do want to be very clear that I never went to war. I had a desk job. Uh, That desk job was in an absolutely wonderful and beautiful part of America. I had an extraordinarily nice life by military standards. Still, this note spoke to me. The book I carried in basic training wasn't poetry. It was The Dragons of Autumn Twilight, uh, the very first Dragonlance book, which uh, I wanted with me to serve as a kind of comfort reading. And of course, totally coincidentally, I have just recently done an episode of this show about that book. I guess probably that was two weeks ago. So of course, it has already been very much on my mind. I don't know how it was for for Drake in the Vietnam era, but we were not supposed to have books with us in basic training. And about halfway through, I was caught with it, finally. I mean, I should have been much sooner, but 
I was fairly sneaky about it, but I was caught and it was taken away from me. But I also had with me loads of poetry. Uh, This I had because I had asked people to send it to me in letters. Mostly, it was T.S. Eliot, and memorizing the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock is how I amused myself in line at the, the chow hall, and I had that whole thing nailed by the time we were done, though I am sad to say that since that was decades ago now at this point, I can't get more than a few lines in now. But it was a real highlight of the experience for me. Certainly, I cannot take that book off the shelf and, and read that poem uh, without immediately being back uh, in line at the chow hall. Also, uh, frankly, without being immediately hungry and tired. When I got home from the army, I went to college, uh, finished college, really, since I, I had actually already started before I enlisted. But I went back to college, a different college, and on a whim, I decided to take Latin uh, in order to satisfy the university's language requirement. And that decision, uh, that decision changed my entire life, the whole course of my life, what I had planned to be doing after the army. I just fell in love with Latin. I fell in love with the language. I, I changed my major and I never really looked back, though September 11th did happen during my my first semester of college. I mean, I guess that must have been the second or third week of college. It was a Tuesday. And so when I graduated from college, instead of going on to be a high school history teacher, as I'd planned, uh, that was what I changed my mind uh, to go do from uh, something else that I had really been planning to major in. Instead of doing that, I went back to my old army job as a civilian for a few years uh, before I then left that job and went to grad school. And I bring this up because Drake also has learned Latin and fallen in love with it, deeply fallen in love with it, I think. Drake has a really robust website. It's it's a great website to go check out. It's david-drake.com. And there, in fact, he has posted his own translations of some of Ovid's poetry. The way that Latin usually works in American education is that you spend your first year learning the basics of the language, you know, the grammar, uh, there's you know, vocabulary quizzes every week and, and that sort of thing. And then, you know, you go on your summer vacation, you forget all of that, of course, but then you come back for your second year, the, the third semester, and what you're going to do then is read Latin prose. You're just going to read some Latin. Uh, usually, this is Caesar, though for me, it was Apuleius. And then your fourth semester, you read some poetry. Usually, it's Virgil. But for me, it was Ovid. And specifically, it was selections from the Metamorphoses. And I mean, I loved Apuleius. That prose semester actually was a really great semester of Latin. But I fell in love with the Metamorphoses just the the first day we had it in front of us. I loved it. I was totally hooked on Ovid at that point. And I have been ever since. When I got out of college and was back working for the military, one of the things that I did in my free time to keep up with my love of classics was, uh, well, I did a lot of reading, of course, but I decided that what I wanted to do was to write novels. I wrote one very, very bad fantasy novel that was based on classical epics. Uh, No one will ever, ever see this. And I also decided to try my hand at hard-boiled detective fiction by imagining Ovid as a poet with a day job solving homicides. The plan there was that I would write one novel for each of Ovid's volumes of poetry, plus then I would write maybe a few shorter pieces about his shorter poems. I I did actually write one complete novel. Uh, That is also very bad. No one will ever see it either. But I did write one complete novel for Ovid's first book. That is a book of poetry called Amores. And the Amores and the Metamorphoses are what Drake has available on his website. I had already seen this. I'd been poking around on the website before I I started reading Lord of the Isles. Uh, I I was poking around over there after reading Old Nathan, or really while reading Old Nathan. And so really, I guess what I'm rambling about here is simply that reading this note to the reader before I'd even read the first sentence of the actual story, uh, just reading this note, I felt like This book was written specifically for me, and I still feel that way, having finished the book now. That was very rambly and and was indeed very personal. I suppose, really, that was probably something I should have saved for the strengths and weaknesses segment, just talking about what I liked, what I enjoyed. But 
I was trying to introduce the fact that what I really want to talk about is the illusions that Drake has peppered throughout the story, because those really spoke to me. Also, they just really amused me, uh, looking for them and then thinking about what they meant about Drake's imaginary world, what they meant for what this world was like, what they meant for the themes and the motifs that I should be thinking about. All of that was a real joy for me. That was my my primary mode of operating in the book. And of course, I, I loved it. Most of the poetry that Drake mentions in this note shows up in the story because Garrick, it turns out, is very into poetry. Also, it turns out that Leanne, uh, that's uh, the daughter of the man who comes to town looking for Garrick, she is really into poetry too. And talking about it and reciting it to each other, using verses as punchlines and jokes, this is the real foundation of their flirting. But there is something significant to the verses that they recite, if you are familiar with the original and its context. I'll give you just one example of how this works, and this is the moment when Garrick quotes the Iliad to Leanne at their first encounter. Garrick says, Lady and your shepherd, grant that this boy, my son, may be like me, first in glory among the men of Sandrakan. May he be strong and brave. May he rule the isles in majesty. And may they say one day, He's a better man even than his father. Now, back in that reader's note, Drake has called this passage the most moving passage in literature. And I agree. This is from Book 6 of the Iliad, and it is part of the scene that we get with the Trojan hero Hector and his family before he goes to battle and is killed. His wife doesn't want him to go. In fact, she begs him, begs him not to go. But he says goodbye to her and to their baby, whom he holds one last time. And it's a really heartbreaking scene. In fact, I I find it difficult even to talk about it without tearing up, especially now that I myself have become a father. And I really just want to read for you this passage in the Stanley Lombardo translation. Uh, It's my favorite translation. It's the one that I used as an undergraduate. Uh, This is a really long passage. I, I hope you'll indulge me here. More or less, this is around line 415 to uh, line 500 or so, if you want to look for it in some other translation of your own, or or check it out in the Greek original, if uh, Greek is a language you can read. And as I start, this is Andromache speaking. Andromache is the, the wife of Hector. Possessed is what you are, Hector. Your courage is going to kill you, and you have no feeling left for your little boy or for me, the luckless woman who will soon be your widow. It won't be long before the whole Greek army swarms and kills you. And when they do, it will be better for me to sink into the earth. When I lose you, Hector, there will be nothing left. No one to turn to. Only pain. My father and mother are dead. Achilles killed my father when he destroyed our city, Thebes, with its high gates, but had too much respect to despoil his body. He burned it instead with all his armor and heaped up a barrow. And the spirit women came down from the mountain daughters of the storm god, and planted elm trees around it. I had seven brothers once in that great house. All seven went down to Hades on a single day, cut down by Achilles in one blinding sprint through their shambling cattle and silver sheep. Mother, who was queen in the forest of Plecos, he took back as prisoner with all her possessions, then released her for a fortune and ransom. She died in our house, shot by Artemis's arrows. Hector, you are my father. You are my mother. You are my brother and my blossoming husband, but show some pity and stay here by the tower. Don't make your child an orphan, your wife a widow. Station your men here by the fig tree where the city is weakest because the wall can be scaled. Three times their elite have tried an attack here, rallying around Ajax or glorious Adamaneus or Atreus's sons or mighty Diomedes, whether someone in on the prophecy told them or they are driven here by something in their heart. And great Hector, helmet shining, answered her. Yes, Andromache, I worry about all this myself, but my shame before the Trojans and their wives, with their long robes trailing, would be too terrible if I hung back from battle like a coward. And my heart won't let me. I have learned to be one of the best, to fight in Troy's first ranks, defending my father's honor and my own. Deep in my heart I know too well there will come a day when holy Ilion will perish, and Priam and the people under Priam's ash spear. But the pain I will feel for the Trojans then— for Hecuba herself, and for Priam King, for my many fine brothers who will have by then fallen in the dust behind enemy lines. All that pain is nothing to what I will feel for you when some bronze-armored Greek leads you away in tears on your first day of slavery 
and you will work some other woman's loom in Argos or carry water from a Spartan spring, all against your will, under great duress. And someone, seeing you crying, will say, That is the wife of Hector, the best of all the Trojans when they fought around Ilion. Some day someone will say that, renewing your pain at having lost such a man to fight off the day of your enslavement. But may I be dead, and the earth heaped up above me, before I hear you cry as you are dragged away. With these words, resplendent Hector reached for his child, who shrank back screaming into his nurse's bosom, terrified of his father's bronze-encased face and the horsehair plume he saw nodding down from the helmet's crest. This forced a laugh from his father and mother, and Hector removed the helmet from his head and set it on the ground, all shimmering with light. Then he kissed his dear son and swung him up gently and said a prayer to Zeus and the other immortals. Zeus and all gods, grant that this my son become, as I am, foremost among Trojans, brave and strong, and ruling Ilion with might, and may men say he is far better than his father when he returns from war, bearing bloody spoils, having killed his man, and may his mother rejoice. And he put his son in the arms of his wife, and she enfolded him in her fragrant bosom, laughing through her tears. Hector pitied her, and stroked her with his hand, and said to her, You worry too much about me, Andromache. No one is going to send me to Hades before my time, and no man has ever escaped his fate, rich or poor, coward or hero, once born into this world. Go back to the house now, and take care of your work, the loom and the shuttle, and tell the servants to get on with their jobs. War is the work of men, of all the Trojan men, and mine especially. With these words, Hector picked up his plumed helmet, and his wife went back home, turning around often, her cheeks flowered with tears. Now, you caught in there uh, the bit that Drake has adapted into this speculative world, but I read a a, a ton around that. I really wanted to read that entire scene. That scene is going to come back later in the the second theme that I'm going to talk about here. I'll I'll bring it up again later. And just in the bit that that Drake is actually rephrasing here and and reframing a, a little bit you know this is a place where drake actually does a lot of world building so instead of this prayer being addressed to zeus it is addressed to the lady and her shepherd and of course drake also replaces the name of of troy or, or ilian as we're, we're getting it in this passage uh, like like everything in ancient greek literature uh troy has at least three different names and and some, sometimes people and places have even more than them uh, which is great if you're a poet because then you can pick the one that uh, fits in your meter for that particular line but is something that's very confusing to to new readers but at any rate drake has replaced that word ilian there with one one of the place names in his world, Sandrakan. And these place names, also character names, is something that Drake has a lot of fun with here. I've mentioned already that Barca is an allusion to ancient Carthage. There are other place names that sound Greek and Sumerian and even French. Uh, one of our principal characters is the shepherd Cashel, and Cashel is the name of a place in Tipperary, Ireland. That is in a rural area. It's uh, one of these places that has more sheep than people, but also it is famous for having a large hill with some cultural significance. In fact, a lot of cultural significance attached to it. This is called Cashel Rock, and it's been a Christian site for 1,500 years or so now, but also is a pretty big part of Irish fairy lore as the site of a fairy castle. And the deal with Cashel, the character in this book, is that much of his arc in this story involves him discovering a fairy that no one else can see. She's a diminutive type of fairy. Uh, She tags along with Cashel on his adventures. She rides on his shoulder. She helps him out of jams. And it's a really nice touch that Drake has made Cashel essentially an Irish shepherd with an affinity for fairies, and that he wants us to know that because of the name. As I said, there are a lot of names here that we could do this kind of work with, but I'm going to talk just about one more here. And this is the name of the major city on the island where our story begins. It's called Carcosa, which is an allusion to not classical literature or or the real world. It's an allusion to some classic weird fiction. Most people will be familiar with the name from Robert W. Chambers' story collection, The King in Yellow, or possibly from role-playing games that use that material, though Chambers himself borrowed it from Ambrose Bierce, and loads of people, of course, have used it in their 
works as well. So, you know, it shows up in True Detective, the first season of True Detective. Also, it shows up in A Song of Ice and Fire. George R. R. Martin has made this same move. There's a place called Carcosa in his world there as well. But in any case, wherever you have heard this name before, the illusion is here to let us know that we are in a world with some dark magic. And indeed, we are. Necromancy is all over the Lord of the Isles. And it's easy to envision that the King in Yellow may have been a necromancer here a thousand years ago, or maybe he's going to be a necromancer here far into the future from this story. But uh, the hooded one, I will say, I mean, because I've been encountering this name Carcosa for the whole book, by the time that we start to get more and more of the hooded one, I mean, I could not help but think that this is the King in Yellow or, or, or someone who is related to him in some way. Chambers' collection also includes a story called The Demoiselle Dies, with Ys here being an island that sunk into the ocean in Breton folklore. And Drake uses this same idea here. Uh, in fact, he, he opens the book with a prologue that is set a thousand years previously, in which an island is sunk beneath the ocean. I'm sure that Drake really wants us to be thinking more about Atlantis than East here, but nonetheless, it is a literary illusion. It's a, a story taken from mythology and adapted to this fantasy world, whether or not it's Atlantis or East or uh, a little bit of both. And, and it does actually feel like a little bit of both. And I mentioned at the top of the show that this episode is really something I'm doing as a companion to the episode that Brandon and I did about David Drake's occult detective book, Old Nathan, over on Elder Sign, which is our weird fiction podcast. I'll say, too, that Brandon and I have been working our way through The King in Yellow. We're about halfway through it at this point. We've actually recently recorded our episode on The Demoiselle Dies, and it's not out yet, but that'll be out later this summer. So eh, if that's something that you're interested in as well, eh, go over to Elder sign to check out Old Nathan, and you can stick around for The King in Yellow as well. Okay, so I've talked a little bit about some of the names that Drake uses here, some of the ways that he plays with names. This sunken island, this is a way that he's playing with a, a story, something that we get from, from classical literature, something that we're familiar with. Drake does this in other places as well. Uh, really, there are several of them, but my favorite is with the character Ilna, she is Cashel's sister, and she has a serious business crush on Garrick. And in fact, this is really what motivates her to just pick up and leave home and go on this journey. When she realizes that Garrick is into Leanne, she, she gets upset. And when she encounters a demon, that demon gives her the power to weave patterns that will work as a, a kind of love spell. Her goal really is to capture Garrick this way. But in gaining this power... She has also lost her moral compass, and she sets up shop in a new city and brings everyone in this city under her spell with her weaving. And this story reminds me of the account of Arachne from Ovid's Metamorphoses. Very much like Ilna, Arachne is a great weaver, in fact, the greatest weaver, but she too loses sight of her humility. And in the case of Arachne, she incurs the wrath of Minerva, who turns her into a spider. Uh, that's you know where we get the term arachnid, right? That is not illness fate here. She is actually able to disentangle herself from this demon's horrible gift. She regains control over herself, but it is a really fun twist on this classic story. And, and if you're familiar with the story of Arachna, you really feel this mounting. Uh, Drake gives us this story over the course of several short chapters that have us visiting the other characters who've all split up by this point, uh, so that this is one of many storylines that we find ourselves constantly being eager to get back to. And I was reading the progression of Ilna's story with a lot of dread, and I was pleasantly surprised that it turned out to have a positive ending. And look, as you can tell, I loved the illusions here. There are many more of them. I expect that this will be an ongoing part of the series and also an ongoing part of my joy in the series. But I do also want to talk about how Drake infuses this book with characters who are dealing with the trauma of loss and violence. There's a character I haven't talked about very much. His name is Nonis, and he is perhaps in his 50s or so. He lives as a hermit outside of Barca's Hamlet, and he's very much respected by the villagers, and he has some skill as a healer, uh, probably what we might call a medic, in fact. 
He's not a full-fledged doctor, but he is very good at treating wounds and that sort of thing. When Sharina decides to go to the capital with this aristocrat and her wizard, she asks Nonis to go with her as a protector. And, wow, he, he really does have to protect her. I mean, they have some incredibly crazy adventures fighting ant people and then having to escape one group after another. I mean, it's really out of the frying pan into the fire over and over for them. And over the course of all these adventures, we learn that Nonis is a war veteran. Uh, In particular, he fought in a battle that ended a a civil war, uh, an attempted usurpation, really, and that Nonis was a part of a unit that turned the tide of that battle, but did so by massacring civilians, including children. We don't learn this from him, but nonetheless, we figure out that this experience haunts him. Nonis cannot live near other people. And he takes his duty to Sharina very seriously. And in the end, he he gives his life protecting her. And we're left feeling like that's exactly what he wanted. That as much as anything possibly could, this act pays a little bit of his moral debt. And so Nonis's story then is a redemption story. It's a redemption story about a soldier who participated in an atrocity and can't go home again and perhaps can really only barely live with himself. And I think that telling this story, not from Nonis's perspective, but from Sharina's, is an absolutely brilliant move. There are other characters whose lives have been shaped by violence, too. Garrick and Sharina's biological parents were killed in another instance of political violence, and the people they have grown up thinking of as their parents rescued them. Again, we don't ever get that narrated from the parents' perspective, but we can fill in the blanks here. We can imagine these 20-year-olds trying to navigate a city in the midst of a violent upheaval in order to get two babies to a ship and to try to arrange passage anywhere where they can hide in order to protect these babies from being murdered by the soldiers of political rivals. These two people, the, the, the parents, the, the foster parents of Garrick and Sharina, they then have lived their entire adult lives in hiding. They've lived their entire adult lives fearing that someone is going to come for their children. And of course, the book begins with exactly that finally happening. And now they have to let their children make choices for themselves. They are old enough to be regarded as at least mostly adults in this society, and so they have to have agency here. All of this, everything I've I've mentioned here uh, on this particular theme so far, is a callback to book six of the Iliad, that long passage that I read for you already. And that passage invoked the horrors of war. It invoked the brutal things that people do in battle and the atrocities that are visited on the vanquished. The backstory that we get now here uh, about Garrick and Sharina's parents as well called to mind to me the other famous epic that deals with the Trojan War. This one, the Latin poem, the Aeneid of Virgil. And it reminds me of the scene in which Virgil is in fact trying to escape Troy with his family as the Greek soldiers are entering it and visiting upon the inhabitants everything that Hector predicted. Famously, in this scene as well, Virgil's wife doesn't make it out, and it's a a really crushing scene. But this was very much on my mind, just any time I was really thinking about these foster parents. But even this is not the complete catalog of all the loss and trauma that our principal characters have in their backstories. The character we begin with, whom I also haven't really talked about very much, uh, this is the character Tenoctris. She's a time-traveling wizard, you'll remember from the, the recap. But her story is that she has just witnessed her home destroyed and consumed by the ocean, and everyone she knows, everyone she loves, is dead. They're all dead. Leanne, who is Garrick's love interest, uh, among other things, of course, has lost her mother. And of course, that means that her father has lost his wife. And that loss is what drives him to necromancy. He's trying to bring her back. We don't know that really until we get the conclusion of his arc. And it's a disturbing conclusion, I will say, even though I didn't include that in the recap. But it's this loss that has driven him to necromancy. And then finally, Ilna and Cashel as well have grown up without their parents. 
And so while Drake is doing an awful lot in this book, there were a number of other themes or motifs that I, I could have chosen to talk about. This really stood out to me as the central theme. And I predict that as the series continues, this will be an arc for each of these characters. I mean, Nonus, right? He's already had his arc completed, but I expect that the others will as well. And I also expect that found family is going to become a major component, right? Because it's not just trauma of, of violence that these characters have in their background. Orf- being orphaned is also a big part of their story here. And so found family, uh, already something we're getting a big hint of. I expect that's going to become really the central theme or at least the central motif of the entire series. Well, I know this episode is running quite long by ATOS standards, so I'm going to keep our strengths and weaknesses segment brief. In fact, I'm going to keep it to one item, uh, a definite strength. One of my favorite aspects of fantasy literature is the extent to which it really is our contemporary pastoral literature. If you have listened to anything else anywhere on the podcast network, you know that I love wilderness descriptions. I love imaginary rural societies. I love Tom Bombadil more than just about anything. And the first act of Lord of the Isles is a brilliant and beautiful pastoral. The village of Barkas Hamlet, I mean, it felt like a real place to me. And I, I kind of wanted to go live there or at least stop by the inn for you know some ale. But also, Drake's writing about nature was really excellent. And I want to read two passages to you. Uh, I mean, I know I said I would be brief here, but two passages, I have to say, really, that's cutting it down. I, I've I got so many sticky notes in the first part of this book. In fact, it was hard for me to pick just two passages. But anyway, here is the first of them that I'm going to read to you. The Mockingbird, perched on the dogwood, continued its series of liquid calls, even when Sharina rattled the clackers only ten feet away. It was a mild, brilliant morning, and the dogwood buds had opened to surround the bird in white profusion. This is just two lines, but I think they're just beautiful. They're poetical, really. And they're, they're just setting the scene for an important beat in Sharina's relationship with Nonus. But... The poetry of these lines, I mean, just just sings to me. In particular, this is an experience that I get to have where I live. I get to have this experience in April and May. It's usually when I'm taking out the compost or really to make it more parallel to Sharina's experience here. Perhaps it's when I'm shaking out my toddler's food mat a few minutes before the rest of my family is going to wake up. And in fact, I'm read this passage in late February, and it really had me longing for spring, had me, uh, when I was doing these activities that week, had me looking at the dogwood trees, uh, not in our backyard, but uh, in our neighbor's backyards, and yearning for them to begin to blossom as well. And it also reminded me that one of the tasks I needed to do before my family got up that morning was fill up the bird feeder. And by the way, although I picked out these two lines here because of the bucolic writing, the pastoral writing of them, I will say there's a bit of world building that Drake is doing in there as well, because dogwood trees and mockingbirds are new world flora and fauna here on, on Earth. They don't actually belong in a world that is trying to evoke uh, the ancient Mediterranean and the ancient Near East for us. Those parts of the world do not have dogwoods and mockingbirds. Uh, These are things I think that Drake would see in North Carolina, in Chatham County, North Carolina, uh, just as I see them here in eastern Pennsylvania. But okay, here is the second passage. This one's a little bit longer, and this one is about Cashel. There was no breeze. The open air was noticeably cooler than the stable heated by the bodies of horses, mules, and humans, but the frogs were in full throat. Cashel could identify three of the smaller species nearby, and from the bottom land half a mile away came the grunt of a bullfrog signaling his hopes for love. Insects were out as well. Bats dipped in the moonlight. Occasionally Cashel heard their pulsing chitters. He wondered if the frogs and bats of far lands were the same as those of this burrow. He'd made up his mind to leave the folk with whom he'd lived all his life. Now, for the first time, he wondered if he was giving up his whole life as well. Would even the stars be the same? Was he going to drift across the aisles like a branch fallen into the sea, never again at home? And this passage goes on. It continues with some business with an owl and a fox that also was very, very beautiful. And the whole while, Cashel is still thinking about the choices he's made, and he's wondering what's in store for him. 
It's just a gorgeous evening. Drake describes it so beautifully. I, I gave you only a very small taste of it. And also, it's an introspective moment for Cashel. And the way that Drake blends those two things, the way that he uses the descriptions, the, the pastoral or bucolic descriptions here to complement Cashel's emotional experience and also to inspire some of the specific things that he's thinking about is just masterfully done. This is uh, sort of three pages of this here in this little chapter, and it's just wonderful. This was, hands down, my favorite chapter of the book. I, I just read these three pages just several times over and over again, and it was hard for me to kind of pluck out uh, kind of one small section for you. So I guess, you know, like you're in the strengths and weaknesses segment, what I'm trying to say is come for the necromancy, but I do hope that you'll stay for the pastoral imagery. And I'm going to close out my review on that note. And in fact, I have been recording this episode in the hours before dawn, watching my son sleep on the, the baby monitor out of the, the corner of my eye. And I have some of those chores, uh, the types of chores that Sharina has to has to do. I've got to go do those this morning as well. And having just read for you into the microphone these pastoral passages, maybe especially the one with Sharina, I'm going to pause in my chores when I'm taking out the compost this morning and take a deep breath. And even though it's a pretty blistery March this year, uh, unusual actually for this part of the, the world, I'm going to take a deep breath out there and enjoy being outside, enjoy the natural environment around my home and I'm glad that Drake has reminded me through his fantasy novel to do that. It really is one of the key things that I I go to fantasy novels for. And I'm glad to have that with me this morning here as I go out right at dawn. But okay, as I said, that is going to bring my review to a close. But I do hope I'm not done talking about this book. I hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or come drop by our subreddit and talk with me about the themes and motifs that I have focused on here but especially on what I left out. I have to say that when I started reading this book and you know, having read the note to the reader, I was certain that I would spend the bulk of the episode talking about ancient Near Eastern cosmology and mythology and, and also religion, religious practices. It's a huge part of this book, but I have surprised myself by leaving out all of it. And I would love to chat with you about it if you have thoughts. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. If you have stopped by here just because you're into David Drake and have never heard of or seen anything about this show before, I do want to remind you specifically that uh, this is not the only David Drake we have covered on the network. And I, I hope that if you're interested in David Drake, that you will go check out the episode that Brandon and I did on Old Nathan over on Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast. This is also right now a very busy time for ATOS for this show. I mentioned in the course of the episode that I have also recently covered the first Dragonlance novel, but also only a few days ago, my medieval historian colleague Jay Deal and I talked about another 90s fantasy book, The Lions of Al-Rasan by Guy Gabriel Kay. And if you missed those, I hope you'll go check them out. And then later this month, I'm going to be doing a lot of science fiction, some classic science fiction, in fact, from Alfred Bester and Jack Vance. And then in April, just as the dogwoods are starting to blossom around here, we will be back to fantasy with some Brandon Sanderson. But until next time, until I am back with you again, I hope that you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.